Talk to you with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The International Conference on Functional Programming 2018 will be taking place September 23rd through 29th in St. Louis, Missouri. ICFP is an annual programming language conference. It is sponsored by the Association for Computing Machinery, the ACM, under the aegis of the ACM Special Interest Group on Programming Languages, SIGPLAN. For more information, see the general ICFP website. And this year, ICFP is co-located with StrangeLoop. The StrangeLoop conference is coming up against this fall. StrangeLoop is a multidisciplinary conference that brings together developers and thinkers building tomorrow's technology in fields such as programming languages, databases, distributed systems, AI and machine learning, security, and the web. It will be held in St. Louis, Missouri on September 26th and 28th at Peabody Opera House. To keep updated, visit thestrangeloop.com. RacketCon will be taking place the 29th and 30th of September. This year, RacketCon will join the International Conference on Functional Programming, ICFP, and StrangeLoop for a week of programming revelry in St. Louis, Missouri at the Union Station Hotel. Specifically, they are in the Jeffersonian and Mecklenburg rooms. 8th RacketCon is a meeting for everyone interested in Racket, a general-purpose programming language that's also the world's first ecosystem for developing and deploying new languages. RacketCon is for developers, contributors, programmers, educators, and bystanders. It's an opportunity for everyone to share plans, ideas, and enthusiasm and help shape the future of Racket. For more information and register, visit con.racket-lane.org. The Big Alexa Conference will be on November 8th and 9th in New Orleans. For more information, visit www.thebigelixir.com. Code Miscellaneous is taking place November 8th and 9th. Early bird tickets and early bird tutorials are now available and will run through September 19th. Speakers have been announced. For more information and to register, visit codesync.global slash conferences slash code dash mess dash 2018. And today's 2019 is gearing up. Taking place the 21st and 22nd of February in Krakow, Poland, when the days brings together speakers and attendees across multiple functional programming languages. The call for talks is open until November 30th, and very early bird registration is open through September 30th or until tickets run out. For more information, to submit your talk and to register, visit plainthedays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to share support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to share your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fndegree. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you'd leave a rating and a review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode reviews. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I am Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Veronica Lopez. Veronica, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm super, super excited to be part of your podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm a software engineer. Currently work at Red Hat. I started working at Red Hat because I was originally part of CoreOS and we got acquired earlier this year. And it has been really interesting, but there I work with Go. I have been working mostly with Go for the past 
four or five years. You can say I was an early adopter and it was by accident. No fuss or not because it was uh, new or shiny. It was mostly out of necessity. <laughs> and well, before that, I used to do some Android development and Java development because it is huge in Latin America. Most developers that are around 30 years old and, or, and older, even if they don't work with that anymore or they don't enjoy it or they don't like it, have gone through Java time. <laughs> so it's almost mandatory if you work as a software engineer in, in Latin America. So yeah, but the reason why I'm here now is because I have been also working with Elixir for a bit. It's been like three years or so, but definitely not at the same pace or, or frequency that I do with Go. But I happen to love it. It is actually one of my favorite pieces of technology out there. And I am totally shameless to say this. And I have said this in every opportunity that I have in my talks at conferences, Twitter and any outlet and now here. Like I would definitely love to be doing the work that I'm doing without Go and instead with Elixir. But well, that's just too, uh, like too much to ask for right now. <laughs> but well, so that's a little bit of my background. Oh, I was born and raised in Mexico City. I work in San Francisco right now. And that's pretty much the general information about me. <laughs> yeah, I came across you from some of your conference presentations and seeing your name as a presenter at a couple of the different Beam conferences, either the Elixir or the now termed the Code Beam conferences. Oh, yeah. And then some of the Erlang Factory Lights, I think there was one down in Mexico. And I've seen the mm -hmm. Mexico groups have some good contacts. So being a fan of Erlang and Elixir myself and the Beam and that power, I saw you come up and saw that. So I started following you on Twitter and Saw so you were also Kubernetes, and it's one of those interesting things to see. I figure we'll get on that at some point is yeah. Kubernetes versus the inherent stuff that the Beam gives you. But you said Java, you did some Android, you did some other stuff, you're doing Go. What was that progression between all those languages, any experiences you had with maybe any others, and picking up Elixir? Basically, the timeline went like this. I first started with Python, though, because I'm originally a physicist. I went to school for physics. Later on, I discovered that I was much, much better at programming than the actual physics of it. I have always been very, very good at math. So I didn't know, innocently, back in the day, I didn't know how math was or could be so related to computer science and computers and all that. So I decided to be a physicist at some point in my life. And even though I enjoyed it a lot, I am much better at the computer side of things. But part of that discovery was through scientific computing. And the way you do scientific computing even now nowadays is either with Python or with Fortran. So <laughs> as a physicist and mathematicians and, well, scientists in general, it is very well known that we are not very good programmers, and that's not a bad thing. The approach that we take and that we need is very different from the software engineering world. The efficiency, the things that we have to take into account are 
very different. Like, for example, we value correctness over speed, for example. Scientists need to perform calculations or simulation that have to be very, very exact, that have very accurate results, as opposed to being ready and fail fast and quick and all these approaches that we have in software engineering. So most of the work that you do as a professional in the scientific computing do not have to do with the algorithms that we know as computer scientists, you know? So it's mostly translating math functions into code. So you usually do that in Python or Fortran. So I started doing some work for some scientists back in the day at college, basically translating algorithms from Fortran into Python. It was a sheer translation, nothing else. It was mostly to modernize like the code base because those code bases were like 15, 20 years old or even older. So it was just like for the sake of like in the meantime, a lot of Python came, a lot of libraries came, a lot of hardware came. So there was a lot of legacy code that had to be modernized. So I, I used to work on that. And I discovered that I was really good at that part. And I started earning money out of it while I was still in college. Like, it was not big money or anything like that, but it was sort of astonishing. So, like, look, if you're not familiar with, like, science in a scientific career, it is very, very hard to actually make money. Uh, like, it doesn't matter how good you are. The way it works is that you usually ask for money, either from grants or your trust fund or whatever source it comes from. Being a scientist is hard on the money side. So even though I didn't struggle, I was lucky enough to not have to struggle with that side. It was sort of amazing to be able to produce some work and get paid for it. And well, I sort of followed along and then I started doing some small contracting Python jobs. And then, as I said, as a software engineer in Latin America, you eventually find Java code. <laughs> so I was at some point, I don't remember the exact um, situation, to be honest, but at some point I was approached with something like, oh, you can code in Python or Java or whatever. So how do you feel about coding on an Android app. It was a very simple app. And it was back in the day, like it was probably the year or the next year after Android was launched. So it was very simple, very ugly, <laughs> very ugly user interface. And I started doing it and all of a sudden, like the bubble burst and I started doing more contracting jobs. And all this time I was still a physics student, but Eventually, like, it became a snowball for me, and I decided to pursue that field instead. I really, really tried my best to not leave physics because I really like it. But, well, in the end, I sort of started working. I know there are some people that are capable enough to handle both things, but I am not one of those. So I decided instead to focus 100% on the computer science part of things. So I moved for my graduate studies. Instead, I went to study computer science because even though I knew how to code some things, I didn't have all the background that a lot of people have, you know, like from the very basic 
algorithms, the sorting algorithms, the performance things, and all that kind of stuff. So I really wanted to learn all that. Well, I was anyway doing that. I had the time, I had the resources to do that. So I transitioned into computer science, not scientific computing anymore. Then I worked as an Android developer for some years, and then I got bored out of it. And then, well, basically also another thing, I will talk a lot about Latin America and Mexico specifically, not only because I was born and raised there and I worked there, but also because it is very different working down there as a professional software engineer. So for example, when you're a mobile developer, I don't know nowadays, probably it isn't that hard anymore, but back in the day, you had to do all your stuff. If you were hired as a mobile developer for any company, you were expected to build your own backend services, the full cycle. Almost even like a couple of times, they even expected me to build my own design assets. But since I have no talent for that at all, I literally had to ask for help. But other than that, you're expected to do the full cycle. Even though your title is software mobile engineer or whatever, you're expected to do everything. Because in Latin America, the workflows are very much like that. For example, another similar example is when you're hired as a backend developer, many times you also have to deal with the servers. There are no like DevOps and very strict classifications. Like nowadays, it's been getting more modern and imitating the patterns of American software development, but it's still, I guess, 50-50, 60-40, something like that. So what I'm trying to say with this is that it's not necessarily better or worse. It's just that you have to be very resourceful with what you have. Also, a lot of companies in Mexico, we are not famous for being a tech hub, right? So a lot of the work that is done down there is consultancy either for American companies or for other type of companies, non-tech companies. So usually the big bosses are not technical people. So this can be great or it can be bad, like anything. But what I'm trying to say with this is that for every technical decision that you have to make, you have to convince these people that you're doing the right thing. So Things such as getting a server, a new server, or a new cluster, or a new paid account for anything become really, really hard because you have to justify the costs and the money that you are asking the company to spend on your work. So as opposed, like in many companies here in the States where you just say like, well, I just need this and you got it, right? So We also had to work with a lot of legacy code. There was no thing like, I just discovered this new framework. (laughs) Let's implement it. No, you really, really had to justify every decision. So to wrap this little subject up, it's like when you work as a software engineer in Latin America, you have to be very, very resourceful. So I was doing mobile development and also building my own backend services. They were very, very ugly, but... They had to work. So I eventually transitioned to that. I also, since I didn't have like the traditional background of learning with front end or HTML, CSS, that kind of journey, I have no talent for that at all. I don't know how to, and I say this with all the humility in the world, 
I have no idea how to do something in CSS or HTML5. I don't know if that's even a thing anymore. So suddenly backend development made more sense for me. And yeah, that sort of picked up. I grew a little bit bored of the mobile development because at some point it all started becoming the same. And what I mean with this is like every single app for a while was basically the same with different logos. <laughs> like every company wanted their mobile app to be the Facebook for something, the Uber for something. So it was just like the same template for different companies. So I grew tired of the tech part of that and I transitioned into backend. Then I started working with Java backend. That was great. I think that I don't have enough talent to be super good at Java. I have worked with very talented people that work with Java and oh my God, their minds work very, very different to mine. <laughs> But well, I spent a little bit there and then the exact transition into Go and Elixir, it was at the same time, happened when I was working at a digital agency in Mexico City and I led the backend team. And we had a lot of legacy code, PHP, Java, you name it but legacy code that worked. So there was no option of rebuilding stuff and wiping things up. And no, it was just deal with it and do the best out of it and build new features and stuff like that. So one of our most important projects was a very large bank in Latin America that is actually now part of the Citigroup, but it wasn't back in the day. So we had this development in our hands and it was really important, but somehow everything on the infrastructure side was very, very weak. <laughs> so I used to wake up at 3 a.m. with one of my ex-co-workers. That is now one of my best friends <laughs> because of everything that we have to go through. We used to wake up at 3 a.m. just to restart the servers and things like that, you know, because We were dealing with what we know now as a distributed system, as a highly concurrent system, but I wasn't hired for that, you know, and nobody in that company was hired like that. We were just hired as simple backend developers. And of course, our infrastructure, our, not even the code was optimized for that to endure those kinds of loads and those kinds of concurrency and the patterns. So we had to wake up in the middle of the night to restart servers, to create more images, like any kind of gross resources that you can imagine were created by us. And we are not proud of it on the code side, but we're very proud of it on the how to be resourceful kind of things. Because since it was a bank, we didn't have to deal with the actual money, fortunately, but a lot of related stuff. So It doesn't matter. Like nothing could go down at any point. So we like the grossest thing we did was we even at some point tore down other websites that we had on other servers just to distribute the load to those servers. And fortunately, no one noticed, ever noticed. None of the other clients ever noticed that their sites were down because it was just temporarily, of course. But, I mean, you shouldn't do that, <laughs> not even for a second. Because again, we didn't have the access to buy more servers in the moment or to scale our cloud or any fancy things that we have now, right? So we used to do that. And 
even though we started growing used to that, it is not humane to do that. So we started looking for alternatives, right? So we were very limited. We had limited infrastructure. We were able to buy more, more resources, but we really had to justify it. And our justification couldn't just be like, yeah, we have this PHP code growing insanely and we will need like unlimited amount of servers forever, right? And we couldn't rewrite anything because it was a bank. So I don't know how it works in other countries, but at least in Mexico, they had very strict requirements on all the things tech. So we were only allowed to use Java, PHP, and some other thing. So <laughs> we were not allowed to rewrite anything. But since part of the infrastructure was on our side, we started exploring things that matter. So first of all, of course, we created many automation processes that helped. But we also were like, okay, so what if there was something, some kind of tech out there in which we could wrap all of these things so that the servers, instead of reading huge PHP queries, so that the servers could read just functions and those functions be sort of concurrent. I don't know. It, was, it all came into that. So long story super short, I sort of explained this story in my ElixirConf talk last year. So what we basically did was, first of all, we started exploring other tech, other languages, and we came up with three options. Either we were allowed to rewrite it in Java or to wrap it with something in the air. We didn't know what was it, but with Go or Elixir, without letting them know, of course, at the beginning. Spoiler alert, in the end, we did let them know, but <laughs> at the beginning, we didn't. So Java was out of hand because, as I said, in our experience, in order to deal with such huge monsters of distributed systems with Java, you have to be very skilled at it. And we weren't. We didn't have the time. We also didn't want to rewrite the whole thing because it sort of worked. We only wanted to deal with the concurrency part of it. So Elixir, we really, really fell in love with it, with how it worked, all the processes, well, with the Beam, actually. And someone first proposed Erlang, and then we discovered Elixir, and by the means of the simplicity and all these beautiful things that it has. But in the end, since we had a very limited team and we didn't have time to learn a full, whole new language that was functional, that had this obscure syntax for some of, of our teammates, and we were not doing that. What I'm trying to say with this is the learning curve would have been very steep. And even though we would have appreciated it in the end, we really, really didn't have the time or the resources to learn it. And we discovered that Go was friendlier in that matter. The adoption process, it's much, much, much easier in our experience. I have also seen like a couple of talks that repeat the same experience philosophy. So the syntax is more of like familiar with things that at least programmers in Mexico are more familiar with, like with C and stuff like that. Also... The concurrency that we like to brag about is very out of the box. I will talk more about this later, but let's say that out of the box, it's super easy to handle the concurrency. 
how you handle and how you deal with the bad parts of it is another story. But, <laughs> but yeah, so we had that. We weren't very familiar with the fault tolerance part that go lax, but at that point it worked for us. So what we ended up doing was adopting Go, and we basically wrapped a bunch of petitions to the server into Go functions so that the server could interpret this as Go routines. So on the server side, we were basically serving Go routines, and we like... One of, of my coworkers, he is brilliant at doing hacky stuff, like the things that you shouldn't do, but that work. He is brilliant at that. So we came up with this solution, like all of this just theoretically, and we decided that I would deal with the server side part of things, and he would deal with the actual implementation of the petitions and functions, also because he was more familiar with the, with the system. So we wrapped uh, the PHP queries petitions so that the server would deal with them as if they were Go routines. And that basically saved us, like that saved our lives. And then with that in mind, of course, like the load of the CPU uh, levels were dramatically, like when I say dramatically, it's like life and death, like day and night, literally. It, it was a lifesaver. We didn't have to wake up in the middle of the night anymore, stuff like that. And also we could do like build a more solid report on the things that worked and didn't work and why we needed more servers and stuff like that. So I sort of fell in love with Go for that reason because it was a very, very dramatic change. I guess that with Elixir would have been a very, very similar story. But the moral of the story is that we didn't have the time to mentor more people. Also, a thing that I still see very often, not only in Mexico, but even here in the States, is like a lot of people don't want to, to adopt Elixir or functional languages other than Clojure <laughs> because they are very afraid that their new employees or future hires wouldn't be able to keep up with it because people have very different backgrounds, right? So functional programming is not... This is not what I personally think, but this is like the reason I have heard very often to avoid adopting these languages is because like for the type of work that we do is because people are afraid that they won't find many candidates to hire them in the future and that no one will be there to mentor them and stuff like that. So that was also like sort of our rationale behind our decision to, for using Go. And then I continued working with Go. I am very thankful with Go and the community because like really my career just grew a lot thanks to that. But on my personal side, I have always secretly or not so secretly more recently continued working with the Beam and trying to learn as much as I can because I found it really, really interesting. So I have this friend, his name is Norberto, Norberto Ortigosa in Mexico. He's one of my mentors. He's like the best guy ever. One of the smartest people I know in the world. And he sort of introduced me first. Well, he helped me with Go for a while. And then he's the type of person that every day has a new nerd reason to be excited about. You know, one day it was Ruby, one day it was Subjective-C, another time he wouldn't stop talking about small talk, you know, anything would do. But one day 
he started complaining about Go, about an obscure thing called fault tolerance. Okay, so he started complaining about things that he was dealing with fault tolerance on Go's side. So I never had dealt with that before, not with fault tolerance itself, but like with Go fault tolerance because, I don't know, out of luck or maybe because our systems were not like we're designed in a way, accidentally, of course, like we're designed in a way that didn't fail, that didn't have, first of all, didn't have a single point of failure. And that sort of, if they failed, some parts of it were really isolated or wouldn't cause any catastrophic damages. But this by no means is my, my work. I mean, it was just coincidence, I guess. But in his case, the systems that he designed and that were explicitly written with Go for Go since the beginning failed terribly and it was real catastrophic. And so he started complaining about that a lot. And he started talking about Elixir. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have heard about it. But I didn't know how powerful it was. Like I knew how it worked, about the processes, about... The Erlang community loves to brag about having systems that have been running for decades without ever tearing them down for updates or anything like that. So I knew that, but I didn't know exactly how, how that worked. So we started having conversations about it. This was before Kubernetes. I mean, of course, Kubernetes was already in the making, but it was not as big as it is today. So, yeah, we basically didn't have anything like that, a tool like that in Go. So I was like sort of all of a sudden really concerned about that part because I was like, look, if I want to continue working on this and I'm building these systems, especially with people, I was still back in Mexico. So I was like really concerned about like, I'm building this type of systems for people that don't know what full tolerance means. And it's okay, they don't have to, but I will have to explain to them in the future. I don't want to deal with this, right? And if I have to deal with this, I want to know how and how, what is this magic that is happening behind Elixir or Beam or whatever that makes it possible. So that was basically the selling point for me. And the thing that I love the most about all the possibilities, all the process communication behind the Beam. And so ever since I have been doing all my personal projects with Elixir, they haven't been many because I'm not that type of programmer. <laughs> but for example, something that I do a lot is all the things that I learn from Elixir, from the Beam community. I always try to translate that in Go, like not with actual code, with the concepts. Every time I'm designing a system, I think of these concepts. The things that I would like Go to have or that, okay, so how would this architecture or this piece of software, this API, like from the most complicated to the simplest of things in Go, I always think like, okay, so how would this look like in Elixir? Not in code, not in syntax, but at the level of how would this fail? So how can I replicate this type of failure in my system, even though I don't have the power of the beam? So that has been the largest impact for me, and it has been huge. On the other hand, on the personal side of things, as I explained some 
minutes ago. I don't have the traditional path of the developer nowadays that you probably start building websites and stuff like that. That is so cool. I have no experience with web development whatsoever. I really don't. For a short period of time, I work with Django, with Python, and that's pretty much it. But Django, like Rails, is very, very easy to deal with because you don't have to deal with the architecture and stuff like that. I am saying this with all the humility in the world. And as someone that only used to create very basic CMS-based websites. So other than that, I don't have a lot of web experience. And every single time that I have tried to learn just for personal reasons, because, you know, this will sound very, very silly, but as programmers, you're always in need to create your own website for whatever you need. It can be like a blog or for your company or to help with something. And I have always feel very limited on that side because I really have no idea. So every single time I hear about a new framework or a new technology or something like that, in my spare time, I try to explore it. And it has been very, very hard for me because there's always a new framework. There's always a new something, preprocessors. So (laughs) the ecosystem on that side is huge. So this is where Elixir comes. So... One day within the Elixir community, I heard about Phoenix, a a thing called Phoenix. And I was like, oh, nice. Okay. So, oh, also on the other hand, like even if my experience with Django was very limited, like I know how it works. And it is not only Django's fault, but it's also like the nature of the language, which is not like 100% suitable for the type of concurrent systems that we build nowadays in this modern world. So not even PHP and its web frameworks are powerful enough to deal with this. Oh, also a very important thing to mention is that Go development for web is very hard. There are some frameworks now and they work, but you have to know what you're doing. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not mediocre, (laughs) but what I'm trying to say with this is that I have no experience with web development. So one day, like in my personal explorations and research, I decided to explore one of these frameworks and go. It is so, so hard. It doesn't have to do anything with like how you create a system with Go. You cannot take advantage sheerly or like transparently of the Go features. In my experience, The only way to be successful at web development with Go is only if you have been developing for web for a long time in another technology and you are really good at it. So for me, it was not easy to catch at all. And then I heard about Phoenix and I started doing the Chris McCord's book, like following it in my spare time. And I discovered that it was not only useful for like the web development per se, but also to learn more about the language because it is so connected, or at least it is in my perspective. I was trying to learn Elixir on one hand alone, the language itself. And on the other hand, I was doing the tutorials and the demos for Phoenix in the Phoenix book. And at some point I was like, well, I don't have to treat them as separate entities because like, well, Chris is very talented. The book is great. 
but also like the way Phoenix works really takes advantage of the language properties. And I haven't been able to find something like this with Go without being it becoming like hacky very easily, stuff like that. So I started doing websites just for my personal entertainment and my personal knowledge. And Phoenix was the first and only tool so far that has made sense to me in my mind as a total newbie for web development, as someone that doesn't know about that kind of things. So it was really impressive. And that was my second selling point. That it was like, you have a way to build something that is like what people think is very simple to do, which I don't think at all is simple, but without the hassle, yet with all the power of the language. So that is really impressive for me, like to have such a simple tool, simple in a good way, <laughs> but with all the power without having to compromise both. So that's basically my, my journey to Elixir, and that's how I like it so much. And right now, as I said uh, recently to one of my friends and that criticized me for working on Kubernetes right now, because a lot of people that work with very serious, very complicated distributed systems or building tools for developers that work with distributed systems do not think that Kubernetes is <laughs> exactly in that category. <laughs> but this person was sort of criticizing me in a good way because we we're friends. Like, so why, if you have such a, like an academic background, why would you end up doing Kubernetes, right? I was like, okay, so yeah, it is not ideal from the point of view, like on paper, if you see like the whole story, but I am enjoying it a lot. And as I told him, it was a joke, but I started thinking about it more seriously after I actually said it, that elixirizing Kubernetes. <laughs> With this, I mean that since I have a lot of input in many decisions, not in the main project, but like my work right now is 90% open source right now for Kubernetes or Kubernetes related projects. So I'm very, very lucky and very fortunate to be able to be part of the sort of important meetings where my input is heard, where I can give my opinion about architectural things, not only on the code side, not only implementing things, but like I have the possibility of people actually listening to me and what I think of something. And a lot of my inputs are based on the knowledge I've acquired thanks to Elixir and to that community that is great. So yeah, that trying to not only patch the handicaps, but like really trying to build something better. And I have found with all the years of experience that I have in Go that a lot of people there are not aware of how powerful a tool like the Beam is. Like very early books of the Go programming language, I remember that they used to, one specific book, I don't remember the name and I don't want to shame anyone, but I remember that this specific book said something like, that Go was very important and that Go would become so big because there was no other tool that would be able to do something like that about concurrency so easily. And I remember that at the time I was still learning these things 
And so I was a little bit confused. I was like, okay, so maybe I was sort of skeptical, but but I believed this person. And then looking back, I'm like, oh, wow. And it's not necessarily because this person was ignorant or anything like that. It's just like they basically didn't know. And still to this day, for example, when I was researching things for my Elixir Comp talk last year, I came up with this, like really brilliant people working at amazing companies with very great jobs, working mostly on the Go programming language, either itself or related projects, were not aware of what the Beam could do. They were just like, oh yeah, this Elixir language that is our, not, not competition because it's there are different beasts with different <laughs> companies behind them and stuff like that. On the marketing side, of course, Go has a lot of advantages, but just on the technical side, without any additional aspects, a lot of people consider them like sort of competition. So they're like, oh yeah, it's just another language. And I'm like, no, like you have to figure this out. And not just to have like childish discussions of which one is best or whatever, but what can we learn about it? What good can it bring to us? So at uh, the same talk, <laughs> sorry for promoting my own work, but <laughs> I remember that in this research, minutes before my talk, I decided to tweet to ask people how do they deal with fault tolerance, for example, in Go. And I had like 15 different answers some of them sarcastic, then they were like, yeah, the way I deal with ghost fault tolerance is crying or with alcohol or stuff like that, you know? They were being sarcastic because it is hard. But one of the best answers, and is actually one of my best friends, and she used to work for the Go programming language, is that, well, the best way to deal with the lack of ghost fault tolerance is to design better systems, to fail better. And that was a great answer, I think. And that is what I have been trying to learn from Elixir, from the Beam. But the complexity of this answer for such a simple question was really the difference I saw and that I, I put it in the talk so that people could see what I was really talking about. Because I just found that, as I said, a lot of people it's not that they refuse to adopt Elixir or that they hate another option. It's just that they don't know that it exists. And well, the answer for the same question for Elixir, it was super simple. They were just like, well, processes or <laughs> I just write something and it works and stuff like that, right? So yeah, that has been mostly my experience with Elixir. I love it. I would love to see it more in the wild to have more options building to be super honest at this point now i have gotten used to it so this is no secret the reason i started working for kubernetes was an accident <laughs> because i originally decided to join coros that is now red hat because i was in love elixir and etcd are my favorite pieces of software ever so I fell in love with etcd, that is our distributed kit values. So it is great. It is beautiful. Before joining, I thought that it was maintained by 10 people. And once I joined, I discovered it was a team of five people. And 
they were all brilliant. And yes, I am very lucky to have met them. But the point is that I only had that perspective of the company. And I was like, well, yeah, I want to work with these people and this type of projects. It turns out that, and I knew this beforehand, that Etcd lives on its own as a distributed key value thing in that ecosystem. But it is also very famous because it is a huge part of Kubernetes. So a lot of people only know Etcd for Kubernetes and that's it. They think that it's the only reason for its existence. It is not. But this feeling translated into the company creating something that used to be called Tectonic. It still exists, but it is in the process of being merged into OpenShift right now. But while Tectonic was our Kubernetes distribution for enterprise, suddenly all the efforts of the company went to that. And so when I joined, I was expected to do that kind of work, like nothing on Etcd, nothing on other systems, nothing like that. It was 100% Kubernetes, and I had no experience in that before, which is also very funny because I say this because that's the truth. And every single person that I know that works with Kubernetes loves to think that they started when it started back in the day, like four years ago, five years ago. But well, in my case, I didn't have any experience before joining CoreOS. The most experience that I had with containers was creating Docker images for the sake of installation processes and stuff like that, or to play, as you said, without messing with other things in my servers and stuff like that. But yeah, I wasn't big on that. So I was introduced to that by accident and I was like, well, yeah, I guess this is still a distributed system. So I started working on that. At the beginning, it was a little bit hard for me because I didn't understand what the need for these technologies was. Then I already knew all these people that, as I said, didn't know things about the existence or the power of something like the beam or that there could be other things because for some time and like, to be honest, this is still true. A lot of people only know that. We have very talented people, yet young people, that the only thing that they know is Kubernetes or something like Kubernetes, like the cloud native thing. So they basically think that almost what I saw in the book, and the Go book back in the day, that Kubernetes is the first and only technology able to do something like that, to solve the problems that it solves. And well, that is just not true. It has unique ways. It has amazing ways. It has grown in such an amazing and quick pace that it is awesome that a lot of people can benefit from it. But I do think that, I mean, it's still a very young technology. And I do think that people working with Kubernetes has to look at what, what is being done in other technologies, not only the beam. But so that was sort of my feeling at the beginning. And I was like, oh, wow. So I will be working on this piece of software that people think is the next best thing. I practically thought of it as the new buzzword. You know? So even though it is a huge buzzword, like with time, I have grown more fond of it and really learned and embraced it. And not only embraced it as an obligation or anything like that, Nowadays, I can see like the impact that it has, and I really appreciate it. And it has totally helped me and to learn more. And of course, like the people that I'm working with and that I have worked, thanks to Kubernetes, are 
truly amazing human beings and also very talented software engineers. And I have learned a lot from them. So back to Kubernetes, my work right now is almost 90% focused on that, 95% focused on that. I have been learning a lot on containers, but in this adoption process, since I didn't have a lot of experience with it, it was very organic for me to compare. So many times when I talk about this, people usually tell me, yeah, but you cannot compare. Like one is a tool. Kubernetes is a tool, like a, a software tool. And Elixir or the Beam is a programming language. So there are different levels of abstraction, right? And I totally agree. But what I have seen in this time is that people use them for the same purposes. Independently of if you like Go or don't like Go or you like Elixir or not like Elixir, going back to my conversation with Norberto like years ago where he complained about his systems panicking, literally panicking because of the lack of all tolerance in it. So people started talking about Kubernetes for the same reason because of the rolling updates that you didn't have to tear down your system to update it. So what does that sound like? Like the brag on Erlang <laughs> of people saying that they have systems that they have never turned down like in decades, not even like for a maintenance update or something like that. So suddenly I started getting super involved in the Kubernetes ecosystem and people were talking about the same things. And I was just like, Hmm, I have heard this before, right? And it became, as I said, at the beginning, it was a little bit hard for me and interesting because it was like, hey, emperor's new clothes thing. Like, like why, why is no one saying something? Like, why doesn't anyone tell these people that something like that already exists? I mean, that was me being super bitter about it at the beginning. Now I am just like, all I want people to see is that there are other options and that not necessarily that we have to adopt them for that reason Kubernetes shouldn't exist or anything like that. No, no, no. And the whole opposite, I think that Kubernetes could be even better if we learned from what has already been done out there. So I now see that side of things and I am very, very excited to be doing what I do. And yeah, it is also, well, to be super honest, at least the people that I have met and the functional community will kill me for this, for saying this, but at least the people that I know that use Elixir in production systems in robust teams and very serious systems use it because they have the luxury to do it. This means that they have amazing team of engineers that are excited about it, that don't dread the steep curve of learning a functional language. Because I do believe that Elixir and Erlang are like the canonical example of a great functional language for better and for worse. And so, yeah, I do think that people that work with these technologies are very lucky and that they can afford to do it as a luxury. So I would love to see people on this side of the aisle <laughs> talking more about it and making it more popular, creating more resources. Because in my experience, it is really hard to start compared to how, how easy it was and it is for people like me to write such amazing pieces of software that impact so many, so many people and that the amount of things that you can do in such a short amount of time, I don't think 
that you could do the same with Elixir compared to the speed of programming with Go. Which, of course, it totally depends on programmers, right? Like, you cannot judge a fish for its ability to climb a tree. But in general terms, speaking in general terms, what I have seen is people prefer Go. And, well, in this, in this context, Kubernetes, because of how quick it is to adopt and how quick and how easy it is to grow things once you started building them. And without having to be an expert in things like functional programming and stuff like that, that are obscure for a lot of people. Or not obscure, but at least not that friendly. But well, I know it's a lot to ask for, but, <laughs> but that's how things work ideally in my mind. And the reason why I'm saying this is because thanks to the popularity and how close to the people, I, I like to think of Kubernetes and this type of tools as distributed systems for the people, like democratizing Linux for distributed systems for the people. And I know how this might sound, but I say it in the best context ever. Because, for example, one of the tools that I'm working on right now, it has a very specific name for the Kubernetes community. It's called the Operator SDK. So the Operator SDK, as its name says, is a toolkit, a framework to create operators. An operator in super, super simple short terms for non-purists of the Kubernetes ecosystem is like an operator is basically any process that you could automate that a human being would be able or expected to do, like upgrades or validation, stuff like that, but that instead you substitute with, with a piece of software for Kubernetes. So... CoreOS came up with this concept of operators years ago, and then people sort of liked it in the community. And now everybody that's worth their salt, every company that's worth their salt working with Kubernetes <laughs> has their own operator to handle different things. So for example, we have the etcd operator, the Prometheus operator, and it really makes things better. Since so many companies have now, and many individuals have their own operators, we wanted to sort of give back to the community by creating this SDK in which you could build your own operator with our opinionated thoughts. This means that this is totally humble. <laughs> the people behind this are totally humble about it. And that's the reason why it's open source. And it's still a very baby project. It's still pre-alpha. And we're accepting contributions and opinions from anyone that is interested. So this is totally not something that we brag about. But with all the experience that we have with both Kubernetes and operators, we decided to make it easier for everyone because operators are as generic as I explained them a minute ago. Basically, to automate any operations that a human being could do related to your Kubernetes installation. But in the process of creating this, people have come with very different processes or things that could be optimized because we saw some operators in the wild or people would ask us about our opinions on their specific operators. And we were just like, hmm, this person could have done this this other way or they're doing redundant stuff with this and stuff like that. And that is totally normal. Because again, Kubernetes is not that old. So everybody that brags about being a Kubernetes expert right now is because they're either contributors or they're super, super smart because there's no way 
to have such a level of expertise right now, especially since it's a project that is still in development phase in a good way, I mean, but it still has room for improvement in a good way. So basically, a lot of operators existed, many of those with different processes that could be optimized. So we were like, okay, so if all these people, all these companies are trying to optimize their process through an operator, they could do it better by creating a better operator. So instead of just doing like a how to create your own operator, whatever, we basically decided to create the, the SDK. And right now, all the people that we work with are super interested Kubernetes enthusiasts that go deep, that are very passionate about it. But in the long term, or well, not even in the long term, in the short term, or even now, a lot of people are adopting Kubernetes for the sheer reason that it makes distributed systems easier to implement and to manage, of course, thanks to the amazing technology of containers. So you or I maybe are able to create our own operators without having any problems. But if you're a developer, like a backend developer, for example, that has to deal with Kubernetes because maybe your company is super focused on web development or game development and stuff like that, like type of developments that don't necessarily have to do with servers or that maybe you don't want to spend that much time in there in order to be able to create better products on the type of development that you do. Well, maybe something like Kubernetes or the operator SDK will help you to be more productive and to be able to reach configuration levels that otherwise wouldn't be possible or that would need a lot of dedication, a lot of time and a lot of expertise, of course, that might not be needed for a single time. Or maybe you don't want to hire someone just to do this for you. But if you have some basic concepts of server things, thanks to these amazing tools, you would be able to do very impressive things that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. So that's what I love about Kubernetes and, well, the projects that I'm working on right now. So democratizing all these type of things is very powerful. I'm not talking about the technology itself, but also I have a very social background. So one of the reasons I decided to work on this software in general, not in distributed systems or Kubernetes or Elixir, is like to help people as a means of social progress. So being Mexican, this is very, very important for me. And also a very personal situation. So for me, anything that helps improve something for the people is amazing. And as much as I praise Elixir and, and stuff like that, I don't see this kind of help or this kind of, as I said, from my perspective, I might be super wrong, but from my perspective, people working with Elixir and, and taking advantage of, of these things are there as a luxury because they can afford to do it. Not, not in terms of money, but in terms of time, because they have cool bosses that are super nerdy and super curious about it and that allow them to explore. So in the end, as much as nerdy and cool as it sounds, it's still a luxury from my perspective. So I think that maybe creating a tool, I don't know what that is, and I could figure it out myself or I could do it myself, but creating something based on the beam that democratizes more our use of technology, I think that it would make me 
love it even more. And also not just me, but like the community would be able to adopt it wider, wider or yeah, I don't know how to say it, but like it, it will have more adoption. So that's what I would love to see. And that's the reason why I haven't, I haven't been able, but I also haven't wanted to do a transition to full-time Elixir development as much as I love it. Because I, I personally don't think that the impact that I could make with my work and my decisions would be as great, as, as huge as the type of things that I do right now. So it is also a healthy uh, mix of things. I am happy with both. And the technology side, I honestly love what Elixir, what, what the Beam, what these amazing people have built for decades. But on the technology and improvement of things for everyone, I would stay with Kubernetes today. So well, what I'm trying to do is making both work together, at least. I like to think of myself as being like a bridge between both of them and try to make people listen to me. Hey, you can do your work better if you just listen to these people <laughs> both ways. So, yeah. Okay. And we're coming up on time, but mm -hmm. you're talking about this bridge. And if you could wave your magic wand as we wrap up, what would some of those things that you would say, given either brand beam adoption, if people were interested in that as Kubernetes and AWS and everything else, or just being able to take that back in and speed up the timeline of Kubernetes adopting some of these ideas, what would be some of those things that you just want people to at least start to realize that you've learned from the beam when you look at all the problems you've solved and are working on with Kubernetes that people don't realize that are out there? What things would I like my community on the Kubernetes and Go side to learn from if you could wave a magic wand and kind of imbue that knowledge that helps democratize oh, some okay, of this okay. stuff. I see. Or get it into Kubernetes even, that it becomes that it's not just this beam language mysticism. Yeah. The people who work on the beam know it's now democratized across everybody. Yeah. Okay. So this is very silly and very simple, but I have literally seen programming languages live and die because of this it's very silly but just the sheer act of promotion of spreading the word of talking about it is huge that's how i came up with go because i heard people talking about it i had no idea what was it also i had i had heard about something called kubernetes but i didn't know what was it but it was in my mind and suddenly when i needed it it was there already. I came up with Elixir just because I literally, I, I don't remember the exact process, but I think that I sort of Googled it, like concurrency language tools or something like that, or how to handle concurrency, stuff like that. And suddenly it was, it came up with that. And then Norberto told me about it. And I think that the reason why I know so much, and I say this, with a lot of humility. The reason why I, I know what I know about Elixir, Beam, Erlang, and that ecosystem is because I have been lucky enough to have people like Norberto around me. Because I had heard about the, the technology. I don't know how he came up with that, how he discovered it, or anything like that. 
but I had someone to ask questions to and that he was actually capable to answer them. So had I not have him, I would probably not be that familiar with the concepts because it sort of came up like this. I discovered this tool, name it like you want it. And I literally had someone very close to ask any questions from the silliest to the most complex one. Perhaps if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have felt so comfortable in adopting or pursuing something. So the sheer act of just spreading the word about it and about its benefits, I think would be huge. When I said that I have seen programming languages live and die because of this, is literal story. I won't call any names, but <laughs> there was this, well, it still exists, but it was donated to the Eclipse Foundation. <laughs> and there, there is this programming language. Well, I will call it because we're close. <laughs> so I am friends with one of the core developers of the Salem programming language that is a JVM-based language. And the team was amazing. The core team was amazing, super talented people. But they made a mistake of not talking about it. It was even funded by Red Hat. On paper, they had everything to be successful. The best type system I've ever seen, everything. But they never talked about it. In this day and age, you cannot afford to do that. Most of them are old school programmers that are not used to deal with all this, you know, marketing stuff. They hate that. And I get it. I get it. But they basically thought that people would come and use their tool because it was amazing. And it really was. But no one knew about it. And with all the offer of programming languages, of tools around it, they obviously became irrelevant very quickly because they didn't have something to convince people out there to prefer their language over, over something else. So, yeah, it sounds very silly. And a lot of people would tell me like, no, but that is not even like programming. Yeah, but unfortunately, that's what I have seen. And eventually that programming language still exists. But it, as I said, it was donated from Red Hat to the Eclipse Foundation. So I don't think that's something like that would ever happen to Elixir or anything like that. But I do see the size of the communities and the type of work as a software engineer. For example, if I were looking for a job right now, the offer of job positions and job postings with Elixir and the type of things and the relevance of the things that you can build right now compared to what you can do with Kubernetes or Go, if that is what you want, and I happen to want that kind of things, it doesn't compare. I would love to have the same amount of projects, the same amount of interesting things to do in Elixir as the things that I can do with Go nowadays. So it's, it's just that. Because I think, I actually think that the tools out there to learn are, are great, as I said, and the Phoenix book was a software life-changing experience for me. It was literally the first tool or the first piece of paper that allowed me to learn more about web development. So I think that we have everything to thrive, just to make more noise about it, around it. I don't know. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end it for this episode. I'm sure we can get you back on and continue talking and dig into more depths about this. 
because I think there's a lot more to expand on, <laughs> but it's been great so far. But yeah, since we're pushing the time and we're maybe a little over, and I don't want to keep you forever, although I can sit and enjoy talking to you about this, but for another episode at least. In the meantime, where should people follow along, find you online, keep up to date, see your evangelization of Kubernetes and what kind of stuff you're preaching about the beam that you've <laughs> learned in Kubernetes and trying to say, here's some ideas, let's at least learn from where we're learning and then what you're doing with Elixir and the other beam languages. Where are the best places for people to keep up to date with what you're doing? Okay. So... Anything on Kubernetes, I will be there. <laughs> and, uh, and GitHub is a great way to catch up with the things that we're building right now. I work with very talented people. So uh, what I'm trying to say with this is that I don't work alone. All these things that I have been talking about is only because I have the best, I have surrounded myself with the best people around, amazing human beings. So please follow their work too that is on Kubernetes in the main project, and also Operator SDK that is part of the ecosystem. You can just look for it as Operator SDK and you will get it. Also, well, on Twitter, of course, Maria Fibonacci. Maria, uh, how do you say that? Underscore Fibonacci. That is not my name. I, <laughs> that is not my name and that is not my last name. And... Instagram. I am big on Instagram, but I don't know if I should be saying this here because on Instagram, I probably talk about tech, but if you're into that kind of stuff, but I am very, very active. I have tried to not use Twitter a lot nowadays. I mean, don't get me wrong. I check it every day and I tweet almost every day, but I used to be much more active back in the day, but I have much more responsibility in the communities right now. So there are many things that I cannot talk about anymore. So it has become much more professional than anything else. But if you want to follow me on the personal side on Instagram, but mostly I'll be at DockerCon. I don't know if this will be out before DockerCon. I, I think, yeah, it will be around there. But I am doing a lot of booth work on the CNCF stuff and container stuff and Red Hat stuff to let people know how our projects work and things like that. So if you have to be at any container-related conference, I'll see you there. I am not giving a lot of talks this year because I decided to take sort of a break on that. But I'm still at conferences, not in the hallway track, not in the main track, but, but yeah. That sounds great. And we'll get those links in the show notes so people can follow along, yeah. keep up to date, find out what other conferences you're going to be going to the future if they happen to be going and be able to say hi, stop by. Yeah. So I'll get all those links in the show notes. Perfect. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And thank you once again, Veronica, for taking your time to join me today. As I said, I've been following you for a while. I know we've interacted on Twitter a little bit, but it has been a pleasure talking to you, getting to see some of that perspective and we'll definitely have to get you on in the future to see what kind of lessons are cross-pollinating because I know a lot of the Docker and Kubernetes and ECS kind of stuff are there, but when you've had the Beam experience, you kind of see some of the stuff that like, what are those lessons learned? What are the, like, I could follow those yeah. in, but yeah, interesting to see how that gets evangelized in the container deployment world and the microservice world and where some of those lessons are. So 
we'll probably have to get you back on, but I know we're pushing our time and scheduled already over. <laughs> so I want to let you get back to your evening, but thank you very much for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. I have been trying to make it a point to talk about these things, the intersection of these technologies and social media and every space that I have. So please follow me there to continue the conversation and I will be super happy to come back at some point. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for being a guest. <laughs> Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.